Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I'm also a 2003 graduate of the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications with a degree in broadcast journalism. I am so glad you found our podcast. Allie Curtis is a former winner of Miss Rhode Island in 2015, but she is so much more than just a former beauty pageant winner and Miss America contestant. Curtis is also a member of the Rhode Island National Guard as a second lieutenant. She recently graduated from the U.S. Army's Field Artillery Basic Leadership Course, becoming the first woman field artillery officer in the state of Rhode Island. A public affairs officer for the Rhode Island National Guard, Curtis will help integrate more women into combat arms, a task that, to steal the tagline from her Instagram account, falls in line with her mission to empower women and girls for a brighter future. Curtis earned her undergraduate degrees in both political science and public relations in 2014 from Syracuse University, and she is our proud guest on the Cuse Conversations podcast. Allie, thank you so much for making the time to tell your story. Thanks for having me on. It's impressive when you run through the list of your credentials, and I I wanted to hit on the fact, first and foremost, people probably identify you with the beauty pageant circuit, with being Miss Rhode Island 2015, but you are so much more than that. Can you tell us a little bit about how you tried to, and you successfully have gotten into the beauty pageant world and used it for a greater platform? So I have done pageants for 14 years now. Uh, I was actually Miss Upstate New York during my time at Syracuse, and it was after I graduated that I became Miss Rhode Island. Um, But I always loved the Miss America organization, and part of being a part of that organization is telling the story of Miss America. And it is so much more than a beauty pageant. It is a scholarship program. It is a women's leadership and advocacy program. And I made it my mission to really make sure that was known. And I think that speaks volumes to the work that I did with my platform. But also it helped me get through school, both at Syracuse and beyond. I mean, it paid for my second master's degree. So it's definitely more than just being a beauty queen, but you have to have the brains and um, really the community community advocacy behind that too. How did you try specifically, you know, we can tell you're very passionate about equal rights and and giving women the opportunities to break down those doors that they previously haven't had access to. What was your goal with Miss America and with the Miss Rhode Island and the beauty pageant scene to try to address this topic and, and make some strides? I spoke at a lot of schools. I spoke at schools from elementary school to local colleges about women's leadership and about the disparities, especially in political leadership. We need women in every legislative, every every decision-making um, realm, really. And I have always said from the boardrooms to the battlefields, there's a need for more women and their leadership. And um, it was really my goal to help change that and help people see that perspective and see where, um, especially we start to kind of socialize women away from roles um, or where women lose interest. I mean, a lot of women will say when they're younger, you know, I want to be president one day or I want to, you know, make this kind of decision or be a part of this organization. And then as you move up in life, it it tends to change. And um, it's always been said that it takes women uh, being asked to run for office seven times on average uh, when their male counterparts will wake up, look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm I'm ready to do this. Um, So I really wanted to highlight those disparities through my speaking tours and um, get women thinking about ways that they can challenge those perspectives and maybe get on a ballot themselves. How did you find, and it's, it's, it's commendable and obviously it's long overdue, you know, the work and the topics that you're championing. 
how receptive did you find you know the beauty pageant circuit to these ideas and to these topics because i hate to say but stereotypically people do think of these as being more about i know there's always a category you talk about the the, the projects you're passionate about but on the surface it seems to be about how you know you look and you present yourself you challenge those conceptions and those notions how did you break down those barriers Right. Well, I think a lot of people in our country will look at the Miss America or Miss USA or Miss Universe telecast and you see one night of glamorous women who are wearing evening gowns and swimsuits and you see just a very small portion of their ability to actually speak and hold an audience and advocate for things they're passionate about. And it's a job that you do every day throughout that entire year. And I've always said Miss America was just a blip on the radar when I was Miss Rhode Island. It was two weeks of my overall time as Miss Rhode Island. And the work that went in to being Miss Rhode Island every day and advocating on behalf of my platform, Leading Ladies, was so much more impactful. And I'd actually gotten involved in um, a campaign towards the end of my year uh, called the I Look Like a Politician campaign with Running Start, which is one of my favorite nonprofits. And it was a national movement to show girls that we don't have to fit into any particular mold to be a politician, to be a community leader. Uh, we just show up as ourselves and that's good enough. Going back to you know 2015, you, you win Miss Rhode Island, you represent the state at Miss America, and, and you really started to get off the ground this campaign leading ladies, equipping young women with the skills to lead. Give us some insight into the core tenets of this program. And obviously it was very receptive. It, you, know, you won the Quality of Life Award, or you were a finalist rather for the Quality of Life Award at Miss America in 2016. Um, this has garnered a lot of attention for you. What are the basic tenets that you try to instill with leading ladies? So first of all, this is really about raising awareness of the disparities that women face when they're in posi positions of leadership. And um, the disparities we look at when we look at the percentage of women who are in Congress, percentage of women who are uh, leading Fortune 500 companies, uh, serving in the military, really um, in any leadership position across the board. Um, but beyond raising awareness of where we really fall short of supporting women and maybe why we have some of these disparities, a big part, portion of this was navigating sexism and calling it out when we see it because if we don't name the sexism, we really can't change that as a part of our culture. Um, something that I faced when I was student body president at Syracuse, and we can definitely um, get more into that and the role that Syracuse played in developing this but I remember when I was running for student body president and they'd be talking about the um, you know that qualities of my male counterparts who were running I had three um, really other wonderful great male students who were running against me but I remember reading the Daily Orange and they're going through their qualities and they talk about the color of my magenta blazer and my red lipstick um, like that's all I bring to the table so um, calling out sexism and the ability to really flip sexism on its head was a huge part of leading ladies. Um, and then I'd always wrap up my trainings with my favorite quote, which is from Eleanor Roosevelt, do one thing each day that scares you. So often we take ourselves out of the equation because of fear. And at the end of the day, we have to look fear dead in its face and take it head on. You have not shied away from any of the challenges that have, have been thrown your way. And, and just, just going on the surface of trying to tackle this topic of, again, getting young women into fields where they've been historically underrepresented, it's so important to have that role model. Because if you don't see anybody doing what you want to do, 
it's really hard to have that dream and that vision of I'm going to do that when I become of a certain age. What has the response been and how have you seen a tangible difference being made with the campaign of, you know, obviously you're an embodiment yourself, but beyond yourself, who else have you kind of seen for some success stories with regards to leading ladies? One of my favorite things that happened um, during this time was women that I had worked with um, personally were running for student body positions. Uh, we had our first dual female president, vice presidential ticket at Syracuse. I had friends across the country at USC who became the first dual female ticket to run for student body president and vice president at um, USC. So it was great to see women actually taking these positions seriously and realizing that they're worth it. They can show up, they can do the same work. And yeah, sometimes it's going to be harder because there are going to be inherent um, issues of sexism that you face and you're going to have to work harder sometimes, but we're doing the work and we're showing people that we're capable of being there and owning these positions and really making decisions um, in spaces where women haven't been for very long. And um, that's been inherent in everything from my time at Syracuse to everything I'm doing now. We have to have women um, who we can look to. And it was uh, Marie Wilson who had said, you can't be what you can't see. And I think for me too, uh, being in the military, I joined when I was 25 years old and it was something I'd always been interested in, but I had shied away from because I didn't have any female role models in that capacity. So the ability to highlight women, uh, show women that there are others like us in our fields. And if they're not, we need to kick down those doors and break those glass ceilings. It's a huge part of leading ladies. What was it about the military career? You mentioned you always had a fascination and an interest with the military and clearly, you know, becoming the first woman field artillery officer in Rhode Island. You work in public affairs uh, for the Rhode Island National Guard. You've made quite a career for yourself. What was it about military and military service that first drew you into that field? I think I've always had a passion in my life for public service in some capacity. Um, I mean, I'll talk about wanting to go into public policy or government. Um, and that was always something. I mean, from the time I was 15 years old, I remember having dreams that I was like on the Senate floor giving a filibuster, like really, really nerdy. But like I always <laughs> wanted to do that one day. And um, I remember being a senior in high school. And that was the time when people were looking at maybe joining the military, going to college, taking gap year, so many different things for our futures. And it was something that had crossed my mind. I feel this great call to service. And, you know, maybe there's something for me in the military. And I remember feeling like, well, I, I have no idea how I would even fit into that equation. Why would I bother? Like, where as a woman do I fit? Um, I'm this like, very feminine beauty queen. I don't know if there's any place for me here in this space. Uh, so I kind of like set that aside. And it wasn't until I was a senior at Syracuse and I started looking at options for graduate school and my future. And like I said, I've always been interested in public policy. Um, defense policy is something that's always interested me. And I think the military as an organization in itself was always something that was kind of this enigma. And I, I don't really know um, everything behind the scenes and I want to, I'm very curious about it. So I had looked into options with the military that would also help me pursue graduate education. And the National Guard seemed like a great option because I could concurrently be in school while I'm serving. So I decided, um, you know, it's something I'll look into. I'm not going to make any decisions yet. And that fall after I had graduated from Syracuse, I went to DC 
as a fellow with Running Start, uh, working to get more women in spaces, in um, political spaces in particular, and I was working with a female member of Congress. And um, it was while I was there working on the Hill, and I always thought that I would end up in Congress one day in some capacity. And um, for whatever reason, being a politician always spoke to me as a kid. But I, there I am on the Hill, have this wonderful mentor, um, I'm in, you know, the heart of our nation um, in terms of decision making, and I felt very turned off to the idea of staying and working on the Hill. Um, and I, I kind of felt like, you know, I, I do have this call to duty and a call to service, and I think that's going to be with the military and not staying in Washington, um, at least not now. So I went home, um, pursued an MPA from Brown University, and decided I was going to enlist and that's about the time that I won Miss Rhode Island and said, whew, got to put this on hold right now. Um, and, you know, the enlistment came later on down the road. But um, it was always an interest for me. And getting up the courage to finally face that fear and uh, a lot of the criticism, because there are a lot of people in my life who did not see the military for me and did not want it in my life. And um, at some point, I just had to tune out all of the other criticism, all the other opinions. And the day I enlisted, I actually didn't even tell my parents until after everything was signed, sealed, and delivered because I, I wanted to be able to say, I've made this decision. This is something I'm doing on my own. And I don't need anybody else to weigh in on this. And um, I was very happy with that. As you should be. You know, be the, <clears throat> be the author of your own story and don't let other people tell you what direction, what path you should take. And clearly, you, know, you followed that advice you know, quite well throughout your your career so far. I want to go back a little bit to when you first enrolled in, in the military, in the National Guard, when you first signed up for that. Can you take me through some of the reactions or responses that you might have had from your fellow guardsmen and guardswomen when they found out that not only are you this capable and competent person in the National Guard in your field, but you're also a beauty pageant contestant and winner on the side. That seems like, again, such a fascinating dichotomy. Well, it was something I didn't really want to talk about because I never thought it was... Um particularly uh, conducive to the training environment or any kind of information that people needed to know about me. So when I joined the National Guard, I was actually sworn in by a former Miss Rhode Island who is currently our chief of staff, which was really cool. So everyone in the Rhode Island National Guard already knew that I had this history as Miss Rhode Island. And of course, we were a local force. Um, so everyone essentially is a member of the Rhode Island community anyways. That wasn't ever going to be a secret. When I went to basic training in South Carolina, nobody found out. It was a nine-week, four-day, uh, yeah, nine-week, four-day bit of training. It wasn't until the last week, the last of those four days, that it had come to be known that I was a Miss America contestant. And the drill sergeants had a field day with it, uh, <laughs> played my talent song over the loudspeaker, they had me perform for them. It was announced at my graduation. All of a sudden, there's people who are pulling me to go to meetings and speak on behalf of the, the company uh, regarding the training experience. And I wanted to keep that on the down low for the rest <laughs> of the time. Um, I went on to my uh, training because I had an enlisted MOS first. I went on to my training human resources school and everyone knew there. Um, and, and everyone wanted to always talk about it and would say, oh, Miss Rhode Island this, Miss Rhode Island that. And then I went on to officer candidate school shortly thereafter. And I'm thinking, please, 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 nobody needs to know about this. And because it was in my bio and they read the bios, all of the instructors read the bios of the candidates. 
Um, I'm marching a formation on my very first day of officer candidate school and this one instructor is in my face and at this point they're trying to really screw with you mentally and make you drop and he's like oh you must think you're so special because you were miss rhode island you probably won out of one contestant you're not special <laughs> you're slow you're nothing and just gets in my face about it and i'm like great here I am, Miss Rhode Island again. <laughs> so um, I tried to do the same thing when I went to Oklahoma in some way, shape, or form. It was found out again. And the next thing I know, I'm doing an interview on it with a, a local news station in Oklahoma. So um, it's always a part of it. And I think part of me has always um, shied away from wanting to talk about it. But, um, you know, it, if there is an opportunity uh, for me to talk about these things as much as I don't always like being on camera. I mean, I'm a public affairs officer. I like working behind the scenes. I like telling other people's stories. I like securing those media opportunities uh, for the organization, not for myself. But if I'm able to inspire one other person to say, hey, I can see myself here and I can stand up and do this and join and pursue whatever it is that's in my heart and face that fear because she did it, then at the end of the day, it's worth it to me. Absolutely. And again, it's, it's breaking down those barriers and putting people in positions to take on roles that maybe were previously unheld. I mean, you think of someone in the military, you don't think of, of glamour and, and someone who's a, a beauty queen who can take care of that responsibility on stage, but there's nothing that says you can't do both. So I think it's a positive message for sure. You shouldn't have to pick and choose what your passions are in life. If you're passionate about A and B and you want to merge them together, by all means, go for it. And you've done a great job in breaking down uh, those barriers. I do have to ask, now that you mentioned it, though, what was your talent? I did the song Poor Unfortunate Souls from The Little Mermaid. Uh, so everyone <laughs> always says, oh, you must be a singer. Oh, you're a vocalist. Absolutely not. Uh, if I actually were to sing, everyone would be a poor, unfortunate soul. Um, but it is the one Disney song that I, I guess I could match in my vocal range, uh, which is saying a lot because I'm like the villainous octopus. Um, <laughs> it worked. And of course, like, you know, you, you got to show up with something different. People tend to think, okay, pageant queen, you're probably some Disney princess. Well, nope, I am the, the queen of the Disney villains. Um, and I loved it. I performed that piece in high school. And I was actually, uh, I guess the story behind that, I was in my South Campus apartment. My sophomore, my, my junior year at Syracuse, and I had signed up for the Miss Upstate New York pageant, and I'm pacing around my apartment six days before this, saying, what am I doing for a talent? I have never performed a talent in a pageant before, and I call my mom, and she's like, why don't you do that song from The Little Mermaid, um, and it had been years since I had performed it, so I said, you know what, we're going to do that just to get through this pageant, and then I'm going to find a real talent. We're going to find some help, because I'm not going to Miss America otherwise, and um, um, several years later, Ursula went to Miss America and I still will perform Ursula to this day. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned, um, you mentioned being on the Hill and realizing that, you know, being on Capitol Hill wasn't really the place for you, but you still wanted to impact policy and you had a passion for defense policy. It really seems like you're going to make a lot of good and make a lot of impact with your new role of trying to get women into combat arms. What are some of the challenges involved with trying to get that next generation of, of female soldiers who are familiar with combat arms and becoming proficient in that, uh, that skill set? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges is sexism is pervasive. 
And in the military, there's, you know, you talk to people who've been in uh, far longer than I have, and they'll say this, this isn't the way the military always has been. It used to be different back in my day, or we used to not have women doing these things back in my day. Um, but that's, of course, changing. And policy allows women into all combat roles, which is tremendously exciting. But um, one of the biggest biggest challenges we face is that people will always undermine women and think we're not capable. And one of the exciting things that the Army has done this past year is instate the Army Combat Fitness Test. So it's the new physical fitness test that takes precedent over our former test, which was um, very much so tailored to gender and age standards. And now there's no gender standards. There's no age standards. It doesn't get easier as you get older. Um, it's not any easier on the, the women as it is on the men. Um, but everyone has to meet the same standard. And it's um, a standard based on your job. So if you are in a combat arms MOS, you are going to be doing a lot more heavy lifting. You're going to have to be doing a lot more physical work and you're going to have to be capable. Um, this is exciting because hopefully it shuts up some of the haters about women in combat arms because there will be people who always say, oh, you know, women get in the way or they're just not as strong or they're going to bring down the team. Well, no, we're all doing the same exact thing. So I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm very hopeful for that. Um, and I hope by uh, allowing women into these places and then seeing them thrive, that it really does start to move the needle and that we are no longer having these conversations. We still have members of Congress who have stood up and said, you know, I, I don't think we should have women in combat roles, but here they are existing and doing the job. And the more we have and the more we show we are capable, the less of an issue it's going to be. And at the end of the day, it shouldn't be a controversy. And I hate that people always have to come up with hypothetical situations um, and, you know, really placing the onus on women uh, to be stronger, be better at these uh, positions. But we're here, we're doing it, and we're absolutely capable, and we're not going anywhere. In a case like this, Allie, there always has to be someone who is the first to break down a barrier, to open opportunities to people who haven't had them before. I know you like telling other people's stories as your role as a public affairs officer, but to be the first person in your state to successfully complete this course, to be a woman field artillery officer, that's got to be a nice badge of pride for you, I would think, right? Yeah, I, I show up to the same unit, do the same job, same uniform as all of my male counterparts. Um, my only hope is that there's other women who see me doing that and say, hey, cool, I can do that too. Um, and it's definitely an exciting time, but m what's more of an interest to me, what I care about more at the end of the day is that I'm not the last. It doesn't matter that you're the first, it matters that you're not the last and that the women who come behind you also have the tools they need to succeed and thrive in that capacity. So um, my hope is certainly that I'll be able to offer that to other women. And um, of course, at the end of the day, I just need to do my job, take care of my soldiers and be the best field artillery officer I can be. Now, give us a little background for those who might not have a military expertise, field artillery officer in general. What is that job? What does that job title entail? So my job in specific, I am a fire direction officer. So I am safing all of the firing data that we are putting forth. Um, my unit in particular uh, operates the M777 howitzer. So um, when you think field artillery, this goes back to you know, cannons. Like that is like where our 
history comes from, any kind of projectile, um, that's where field artillery is really rooted in. Uh, we have several different types of artillery that we use in the Army today. So uh, field guns, essentially the cannons, and um, rockets. And I'm with a howitzer unit. Um, so we, you know, are a heavy artillery unit. And um, we have to make sure that we are firing projectiles in a way that's safe. That takes into consideration um, any civilian considerations. We're not firing places that would be considered war crime. Um, <laughs> So it's a, you know, it's a very technical capacity. There's a lot of math involved um, and you have to take into account different conditions, non-standard conditions. Um, it's the best way I have to describe it because it's something that I was like, oh, that's really cool. I want to do that. Um, that's kind of badass. <laughs> and then um, I get there and I'm like, oh my God, this is a new language and there's so much math involved. Um, and, and it really was, it was really difficult for me. Um, and I'm a very academic person. I've always been uh, very into school, but showing up in Oklahoma and learning this, which you, you never, you never do something like this in the civilian world, there are people who um, are, you know, are the military officers who have experience in the civilian world that correlates to their career, maybe in finance or logistics or human resources, but field artillery is just something so unique to the military. It was really, uh, really quite the experience. And I will say on that, I show up to field artillery school and I don't know what to expect. I just know that it's one of the hardest schools uh, for the basic officers leadership level um, that they have a really high washout rate and there's a lot of people who will fail out of this program and have to do it multiple times and um, that there aren't a lot of women who are in field artillery so those are kind of all the things that are uh, floating around in my head as I show up to a new place I've never been to and the first officer I meet there the first fellow second lieutenant um, is a Syracuse alum and um, I made one of my best friends in the field artillery program day one, and we were just talking about where we went to college, and all of a sudden we both realized we went to Cuse, and that was a really cool connection to have. So it's just funny to see how uh, Syracuse follows you everywhere, and there's always a really tight-knit connection, even though we weren't even at Syracuse during the same time. That's that's just how old of a lieutenant I am. We weren't even there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what year you graduated, what experiences you had, that really, the, the Syracuse education and the time on campus, you know, bonds and ties us all together. And you, know, you had mentioned off air before we got started that your whole story of what you're accomplishing now, the basis for it was formed at Syracuse University. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so I knew, I knew that I wanted to join the student association before I came to Syracuse. I was like, oh, I'll probably be student association, Citrus TV. Um, I was a political science and uh, Newhouse major, so it makes sense. And my very first week, I show up to a student association meeting and I look around and it is literally an auditorium filled with men. And I had to ask someone, I'm like, is this, is this the right place? Because I'm like, maybe there's like a fraternity meeting here. I don't really know. <laughs> I feel so out of place. Um, and there were a few um, women who were involved in student government at that time. But I started doing my research um, as to why, I mean, there, there are more female students at Syracuse than there are male students. Why is our student government so disproportionate? And I had gone to a student government conference my first year too, and realized 
that um, about 50% of schools across the country had had female uh, vice presidents, but only 20% had female presidents. And I started looking deeper into this and kind of peeling back the layers. Is this because there's inherent sexism on campus? Are women not running to begin with? If they're not running, why are they not running? There are so many capable women students across the country who could be leading these executive positions. Um, and I found a mix of a lot of these things um, where there are women who didn't want to put themselves on ballots because they had seen other women do it and they were criticized. Uh, this kind of ties back into what I was saying before. I'm like, well, you know, it's really frustrating when I have all of these qualifications or I was the student body vice president prior to running for president and Daily Orange wants to mention my blazer color and my lipstick or the fact that I'm a beauty queen over the fact that I, I've done X, Y, and Z on campus. Um, so I really started looking into ways, both like in my academic realm, but also in my realm in student government, how we could really turn sexism on its head. And I came across a program called Elect Her, which is run by Running Start. And they would pick 50 schools. And when this program back in its inception, they'd pick 50 schools across the country that they could facilitate Elect Her at. And it's a day-long training where they train women to run for student government or to get on a ballot in their community or maybe they just want to be a leader in some capacity and they need the tools to really navigate that space. So my junior year I had applied at the end of the year I'd applied for this program and it was a couple weeks into my senior year that I found out we were selected. So elect her came to Syracuse and it was one of the most fulfilling things seeing that we had a room full of women leaders, some who wanted to run for student government, some who wanted to run in their communities. I remember one student was like, hey, I'm a math major. This isn't necessarily particular to me, but I'm a woman in this space where there are so few other women and I just want to learn some skills to help navigate it. And um, it was such a big hit. That was the same year that the chancellor was having his fast forward grant at his inauguration and another female student and I, um, and actually we had butt heads a lot um, in our time in student government. And that, that's a problem too, because sometimes women get um, hypercritical of each other. Sometimes we can be each other's worst enemies as opposed to being each other's best friends. Um, but when we realize that we're able to really work together to overcome some of these things that women face. Uh, we're far better being allies than enemies. So this other student and I, um, Adriana Cam, who's fantastic, we came together, put a proposal together on this program, and we were selected for one of the grants. And the following year, Elect Her came back to Syracuse because of that. So even after I had uh, graduated, I still came back to make sure it was in place and I was still moving things behind the scenes and helping us secure speakers. And um, I've been involved in that program, um, local schools, since then. And um, it's really great to see it thriving, but to know that I had a role in that and um, it was a huge part of my passion come to life. You had the honor of serving as both the vice president and the president of the student association on campus. That must have been quite a thrill to get to be the voice and the, the leaders who were in charge of, of guiding the well-being and welfare of your fellow students. It was a huge honor. Uh, it was a huge undertaking. And I had some of my best days and some of my worst days at the time. And um, it's a great place to really work through some of, uh, you know, your leadership training and um, experiences. And I remember being student body vice president and having really felt beat down and exhausted um, 
And I wondered, I'm like, do, do I want to run for office again? I mean, like, I understand when, when people leave public office or that, you know, like, hey, I'm going to do something different because um, it can take a toll on you. And this was just at like this, the collegiate level. Um, and I had really battled over that summer if I was going to run or not. I'm like, I could have this peaceful life where I just focus on my academics. I'm just enjoying my life. Um, and I came back to campus and I had been on campus just a few days and I was like, you know what? Like, I love this place with just my full heart and soul. Um, there's no way I'm not running for president. And I did. Um, and again, it was difficult. I had some of my best and worst days. Um, and that during that time, we ran on a calendar year. So I had a kind of a break in between my junior spring and my senior fall. And I had, I had actually competed for Miss New York that summer. And um, there was a woman in the audience who had also competed at Miss America a few years prior, and she took a liking to my platform. Uh, I did not do well at Miss New York. There was like multiple women who went on to be Miss America in my class. It was a very competitive class, but I always say I won at Miss New York that night because of this friendship that came, uh, came from this. But this woman was watching in the audience and had sent me multiple messages on Twitter that I didn't see until after the pageant was over. And they're like, meet me in the lobby. I need to talk to you. Come here now. And I'm like, who is this random person? Like, this is so weird and creepy. Um, <laughs> I went out on a limb. I went down to the lobby and sat down with this woman who had been Miss Vermont 2010. And she said, your platform is everything I am passionate about. It was my platform. I have run for office. I need to be friends with you. Let's talk. And we ended up staying, um, I think we were up to like two o'clock that night, just talking about all of these issues inherent to women running for office um, in the lobby of this hotel in Staten Island. And um, I said to her, you know, I, I always thought I'd want to run for office, but this presidency has been really hard and I don't know if I can do it. And she said, you've weathered the storm and you've made this a better place for other women and you've already weathered the storm. It, like, why wouldn't you put yourself back out there and get on a ballot? And um, that hit me really hard where I'm like, yeah, like, why, you know, why have I taken all these beatings um, or like working through these challenges? Because when you're in a leadership position, you're always, always going to be critiqued no matter what you do. And you just have to be able to learn how to take them in stride, to own your decisions, to learn from your decisions and to have um, the humility to admit when you were wrong. And I learned all of those things like <laughs> real big during that time, which I'm thankful for. Um, but I ended up getting a call from this woman, her name's Caroline Bright, uh, a few years later, and she said, hey, I'm running for office again, because she had told me she'd run for office uh, prior, but she had lost, and she said, hey, I'm running for office again. That's awesome. So glad to hear it. Cool. Like, oh, she's probably looking for a donation or something. Cool. I'll send her some money. She goes, I want you to be my campaign manager. And um, I'm, next thing I knew, I was um, moving up to Vermont, and I spent half a year in Vermont working on her campaign in 2016. Um, she ended up losing, but she did very well. And again, it was a huge, huge opportunity and firsthand experience for me to have working for a female candidate and really fighting alongside someone who shares so many of my values. And because of that, I think that's made my love of civic engagement that much deeper. And yeah, you're going to face some losses here and there, but if you keep fighting, 
uh, you're bound to eventually come out on top at some point, whether that is a victory for um, something legislatively that you're passionate about or you eventually get that office one day. Um, it, it was a really, really important lesson for me. And it was a time in which I could put everything I had put out there as Miss Rhode Island really to the test um, and live the experience. You're extremely passionate about the topics you get involved in, and you're also a very passionate alumna, and we're glad to have you uh, amongst our Orange family. What does it mean to you to be a graduate and alumna of Syracuse University? I love being forever orange. It means I always have a place at home up in Syracuse, New York. Um, no matter how many years have passed, I mean, I'm now at that point where I don't know any students on campus, uh, <laughs> but it still feels like home whenever I go back. And having that sense of home and belonging is so important and this wonderful sense of pride in the orange community. Um, that was one of the things that attracted me to Syracuse from the get-go. I was a kid growing up in Northern California, and there weren't a whole lot of folks from Syracuse uh, or students going to Syracuse from my high school. And um, in fact, I was the only one. But the thing that I loved about it was like, I know that I have this huge network of orange family that I'll be walking into when I go to this school. And uh, that's definitely spot on with the way the Syracuse alumni community is. So I'm thankful for it. Well, Allie, we're thankful for all the contributions you're making to, uh, to improve the world, to give women opportunities in fields where they've been traditionally underrepresented and just breaking down all those glass ceilings around you. It's been a privilege having you on the Cuse Conversations podcast, and we wish you nothing but the best of luck moving forward. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for checking out the latest installment of the Cuse Conversations podcast. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. My name is John Boccasino signing off for the Cuse Conversations podcast. Yeah.